Hello, I'm Rolf Fontanelle. This is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, and today we are speaking with Joel Calvismaki. Joel, it's an absolute delight to welcome you back to the podcast. It's a um, pleasure to be here. But this time, we're not talking about all things Pythagorean and Neo-Pythagorean. We're talking about all things Evagrian, Evagris Apontus. You're working on Evagris. You're about to come out with with uh, Robin Darling Young and a team of other scholars a translation of all the multiple texts that make up our extant records of the Gnostic trilogy of Evagrius. But before we get to his Gnostic trilogy, I wonder if you can introduce the man, the myth, and just give us a a picture of his life, his basic bio. The man, the myth, the legend. Well, um, many people know Evagrius only because of his posthumous condemnation as one of the originists. Um, but in his own day, Evagoras was a celebrated writer and theologian. He was born around the year 345, probably well-to-do family in Pontus, and seems to have gotten his education either in Pontus or in Cappadocia, where Basil the Great made him reader. We don't know much about his early life, but he was taken by Gregory of Nazianzus to Constantinople when Gregory was appointed to be archbishop of the city. And Gregory seems to have put a lot of trust in Evagrius because we know that he made Evagrius his deacon. And so Evagrius became the archdeacon of Constantinople. One could imagine, in fact, that he was due for a a very successful ecclesiastical career that may have included becoming patriarch one day, but there were other things in store for him. He uh, fell into a romantic relationship with a married woman. She was married to the prefect of the city. He resisted and was visited in a dream by an angel who made him swear on a Bible that he would leave Constantinople and flee this temptation. So when he woke up, he wasn't too sure what to make of it, but he got on a boat and headed to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he ran into Melania and Rufinus, who had monasteries in Jerusalem. And for about six months, Evagrius kept up his normal way of life, apparently. He was uh, quite flamboyant guy dressed well and he liked nice clothes and um, fell into a sickness and was uh, then exhorted by Melania to embrace the monastic life. And so he he uh, became a monk there in Jerusalem, but at their direction went on to Egypt. In Egypt, uh, we know that he must have spent time with some of the people in Alexandria, such as Didymus the Blind, before he moved on to what um, would become his home, Kelia and um, Nitria, the the two monastic communities where he then spent the last about uh, 16 years of his life. From 383 to 399, he was in one of those two locations. And... um, left behind a very large body of writing. We have dozens of his works, or we know of them. He wrote carefully and according to the particular audience. And so his when he was writing ascetic material, he stayed to the asceticism. When he wrote more speculative metaphysical works, he 
well, he, he, he went for it, <laughs> uh, but he didn't really do much with the metaphysics in some of his more ascetic works. And so what survives in Greek is largely his ascetic corpus. The other portion made him um, infamous as an originist was attempted to be scrubbed or it was put under the names of more palatable authors. We have many of these texts, though, because the corpus was translated rather early into Syriac. And from Syriac, it made its way into other languages, Armenian, Arabic, Georgian. Syriac became a, a very important um, method of preserving his works. In fact, Syriac is to Vagris's corpus what Latin is to Origins, in that much of Origins' corpus survives only in Latin translation, and he's really unknown in Syriac. Well, the same thing uh, in the reverse is true for Evagrius. He, he's treated as a saint in most of the Syriac manuscripts that receive him, um, but he, there's very little Syriac or very little of Evagrius in Latin. Right. Um, now, so far, so good. That fellow you mentioned, Rufinus, we've seen him before on the podcast. He is the guy who translated um, Origins on first principles into Latin in an arguably either Baudelarized version where he, well, he apparently was convinced that someone had tampered with Origen's uh, text and, and inserted non, you know, sort of inserted heretical stuff and he was just taking it out. But we might also think that he was, that Origen just was heretical according to the fourth century orthodoxy reigning in the circles that Rufinus was moving in at that time. We'll get to the, you know, the problems with Origenism later on in this interview. So Rufinus, we know from before, he's a Latin speaking guy, but now we see him in his natural habitat, which is as a monk in the Holy Land, right? And he's sort of yeah. part of this East Roman scene of Christian intellectuals who are also hardcore ascetics. That's right. Mm -hmm. Now, when we interviewed Paul Biscasi about early Syriac asceticism, he didn't really think it made sense to talk about monasticism at that stage. Now we're Getting into the fourth century, time is moving on. Does it make sense to talk about monasticism? Or is it is this just the time when monasticism is sort of being founded as a thing, as a way of life? Well, we, we know that monastic communities uh, emerge in the early fourth century. The late fourth century is, is when many formalisms enter into that particular life. And Evagris is one of our earliest witnesses to that kind of maturation of monasticism. Okay. For example, one of Evagoras's more famous works, the Practicos, begins with a prefatory letter to a certain Anatolius. This prefatory letter uh, responds to a request to explain what monks were wearing. And Evagoras goes bit by bit through the different parts of the schema of the monk, interpreting what they mean for the life that the monk leads. So we know it, it, from this text, which is, we, we can't date this, but it's somewhere in the 380s or 390s that um, monks were actually wearing some kind of schema. And it's not anachronistic to, to talk about it that way, at least for Egypt. In Syriac, it may be a, a, a different story at this time, but certainly Egypt being celebrated for for this way of life uh, would have had these 
kinds of formalisms. Otherwise, you can't explain why so much um, tourism took place to Egypt for the express purpose of seeing these ascetics and monks do what they do. Monk tourism. Yeah. Monk tourism. Which would which would take a spectacular form when we get to uh, St. Simeon Stylites, but um, that's a story for another time. So great. We have a burgeoning movement which is, ta- which is crystallizing in our period as something that will become recognizable as monasticism with monastic rules and all that stuff. That's a, that's a good bit of context to know about. Now, Evagrius, I guess, is interesting in this context because he is super polished, educated Hellene, right? And he writes really yeah. nicely, yeah. as did Gregory of Nazianzus and, and Basil. And um, so he's moving in this sort of like elite, very literate monk world, it seems to me. A lot of monks were not writing polished pieces of Greek prose at this time. That's true. Yeah. And we, we imagine that Evagoras is probably one of a number. If, if the accounts that are in the Historia Monochorum and Palladius are true, there were a number of intellectuals who found their way here. And we can imagine that Evagoras was not just a, a fish out of water. He was actually one of a number of, of people thriving in a community that, that in, encouraged the kinds of things that Evagrius and, and others would have been doing. Okay. So I, I wouldn't propose, uh, as I think maybe in the popular press, you might get that, that the monks were somehow anti-intellectual or that there were intellectuals poo-pooing monks. I, I think that there was a kind of symbiosis and uh, the, this dichotomy that is relevant in later periods was would not have been relevant in in Evagoras's own time and period. Right, maybe be, partly because it was kind of a DIY movement, like full of life and full of um, creativity. Right, no one no one set down a, a law for monks that they're that they've been following for eight hundred years, and you everyone knows it, and you, it's just this kind of ritual repetition every day, and there's no kind of new stuff coming in. It's like all new in the fourth century, and because uh, this kind of lifestyle was in a certain respect, on the intellectual cutting edge. You know, if you look at the letters that Antony left behind, you see somebody who is clearly engaged with the currents of thought of his own day. The Antony of Athanasius and the Antony of the letters are not as at odds with each other as they need to be. So this is St. Antony of Egypt, right? The guy who goes out in the desert and fights with demons in later reception. He's the sort of proto... He's the, he's, is he the patron saint of monks or he's the, he is the, the sort of titular he's head of this thing? Yeah, he's considered the founder of anahoretic monasticism, of the, the, the monk who goes off into the desert alone. Mm. Whereas he, he's often contrasted with Pacomius, is considered to be the founder of Cenobitic monasticism. Hmm. It says a lot about our milieu, about the, the culture at the time, that a guy who goes off into the desert on his own becomes famous, right? And is somehow, despite being in the desert on his own, writing works that get disseminated and so on and so forth. You'd think that those two things would be mutually exclusive, but they're not. So the people seek out the monk who goes off in the desert on his own to uh, presumably get some of his mojo. Yeah. And um, 
there's spectacle involved. Uh, we'll, I think you've touched on this with uh, Paul Pasquese's interview with the Stylites, the mm. Pillar Saints. There's there's spectacle, and people would actually hear about these feats of bravery and go out and, and visit them. It's the closest analog, I think, to today's modern professional sports. That is, these um, heroes out in the desert were were doing things that were famed as being superhuman, mm. and people wanted to see that and or even be part of it. And it was participatory. Uh, that the message was, well, you too can engage in this. You too could become a professional athlete for Christ in the desert. Yeah, give it a shot. And so that's why I think in in Egypt you see this. Um, influx of foreigners to be part of this. It was a very cosmopolitan movement um, that uh, attracted people like Evagrius. Crazy. It's amazing. Egypt ha always had been and always probably will be a tourist destination, but the, the reasons for the tourism change over time, right? So at this period, there was a kind of uh, extreme asceticism tourism where people would come to see the, these desert saints and check out what they were doing. So Evagrius of Pontus. Before we get on to what he wrote, which I'd really like to talk to you about, let's just tie a bow on his life. How does how does he end? What what happens to Evagrius in the end? Does he die of old age peacefully in a monastery? He he dies of uh, of old age. Three ninety nine is the assigned date uh, in Easter, just before the dams break loose on the Origenist controversy that engulfs the area. So he um, dies in the church's good graces, and he's a he's a great guy, and everyone loves him. Yeah. Well, he yeah. We we don't know the particulars, and much of the account that I've given you is taken straight out of Palladius, who can be second guessed for his accuracy with fairness. Like the story of Evagoras's affair in Constantinople, I, I have colleagues who have good reason to doubt that his account of that is actually the truth, or at least it may be embellished. We don't know. But Evagrius doesn't write about himself. He, we have very little firsthand information from him. It comes from secondhand sources, Palladius being the, the primary one. But the, the, church, the fifth century church historians also have some things to say about him. Okay. Now, what did this guy write? He wrote a lot of stuff. He wrote a lot of stuff, yes. And he was a a very good representative of the kind of literary creativity of his day. He can be credited with inventing, at least for our purposes, what, what became the later tradition, uh, inventing the genre of chapters. That is pithy, gnomic, paradoxical sayings arranged in a particular order and usually numbered Commonly in groups of 100, a genre that became known as the centuries genre. Uh, Evagoras seems to have, have developed this, and he wrote a number of these chapter collections um, for different purposes and for different occasions. Many of these survive because they were, were just so important for the ascetic tradition, uh, the monastic tradition, that they were just preserved. Um, he wrote letters. We have a corpus of more than 60 letters, almost all of which are preserved only in Syriac. We do have an important letter called the Letter on Faith that was uh, credited to Basil 
the Great, sometimes to uh, Gregory of Nyssa, and sometimes to Nihilus of Ancyra. Uh, but it was recognized in the 20th century as being his. And it seems to be the earliest datable writing that Evagoras left behind. He wrote it around the time that he was in Constantinople, and it's a defense of his departure to some place and an explanation of his position on Trinitarian topics. He was asked to deal with with a number of questions that Arians were posing, and, and he, he presents them. Um, he wrote, uh, he, it seems to have invented a genre called the, uh, the talking back genre, which is a, uh, a set of sayings one is supposed to utter, normally words from scripture, for certain cases or certain situations in life. The talking back, the anti-reticos survives also only in Syriac, but it reflects um, a practice that we know is widespread in Egypt at the time of using scriptures apotropaically for certain temptations or, or certain situations. Evagrius also wrote some regular prose treatises, normally in response to um, requests to deal with, with ascetic topics. And uh, Evagoras was one of our very first scholiasts. And by scholiasts, I mean people who are writing commentaries commonly in the margin of page on the scripture. Scolia were, well, th th that's an interesting topic, but it seems that around the fourth century, mid-fourth century, you get the first production of books with wider margins intended to receive comments. And this is documented mainly in the legal circles around Beirut. But other people start following suit. And Evagrius, along with Didymus, are, is our earliest known writer of scolia. Evagrius wrote many, many scolia. In fact, um, his most important work of scolia, that on the Psalms, was only recently critically edited in Greek. It appeared last year and is actually above and beyond the, the largest work Evagrius left behind. It's very, very important. It has many comments that show what he was working on, what he was thinking on, and they survive intermingled with, with Scolia by Origen and Eusebius and, and others who were also commenting on the Psalms. Got it. So someone made a Scolion collection of these guys and his... Yeah, we don't know how these how these survive. Well, let's take, for example, the Book of Job, where, where we have about 45 or so Scolia attributed to Evagrius. They survive only because they're intermingled with the Byzantine Scolia collections. So... Got it. We don't know, though, uh, how they got into these Scolia collections. Did, some, did he collect them and circulate them? Did his followers do so? How did these appear? Um, the closest we get to an answer to that is with this scolia on um, the Proverbs, which actually do appear as whole collections. And there are traces that suggest that somewhere in late antiquity, somebody had collected them and put them together and circulated them as an ensemble before they were dismembered and, and included in uh, along with everyone else's scolia on, on particular Proverbs verses. Hmm. 
It's a really interesting uh, textual activity. I wonder if there is, and we'd probably never be able to know if there is, but if there's any influence going between the Jews who are currently inventing rabbinic Judaism, basically through doing scolia to a degree that's never been attempted in any tradition before, just hyper commentaries on commentaries on commentaries on commentaries in the Sasanian, you know, world. And these Christians who are starting to to do the same thing, to comment on comments and, you know, assemble comments and into corpora, corpora of comments and stuff like this. So he's writing on scriptural topics, a go-go. He's writing on, like, Trinitarian controversy. So is it safe to say that he is fully of the Nicene uh, theological team? He's he's on the side. Is, is, is the Council of Nicaea and its um, official pronouncements being... Is it pervasively kind of uh, in effect in the East Roman realm where he's living? Uh, well, there's controversy still going on. There's the Aryan when he's writing, but but Evagoras is wholly on the Nicene side. He, Got it. He and and Gregory of Nazianzus, whom Evagoras regarded as his master. Um, mm. yeah, so they're, they're lockstep together. We come to we have all this huge corpus of stuff but the stuff that maybe we're most interested in on this podcast is the stuff that you've been working on to prepare your upcoming book your upcoming translation project with these other scholars which is the so-called trinity also known in some circles by the enticing title the gnostic trilogy and this is the practicos the gnosticos and the kephalaya gnostica or the gnostica kephalaya so the kephalaya gnostica is obviously this this genre you've talked about, the chapters. So it's short, quite potentially, it's terse and therefore potentially ambivalent and dis- difficult to uh, flesh out statements, right? Yeah, yeah um, you're supposed to work on them. Right. This genre, I guess, as a Christian thing with the centuries and so on is, is new, but it does have roots, right, in classical. Like you think of Zeno of Citium. He wrote, we don't have his work anymore, but we th- we think he wrote kind of notebook full of short pithy statements um you have the sententiae like porphyry's sententiae which are short kind of sometimes like nicely rhetorically balanced um little one sentence gems two sentences and then it goes on and then you have you know nietzsche at the end of this uh, tradition maybe writing his short phlegmatic apothems in german so I wonder if you could just give us a picture of the Practicos Gnosticos and the Kephala Gnostica and, you know, what, what they are, how they interrelate. Yeah, be happy to. So, so yeah, the, we have this trilogy and it's considered to be the, large, the major work that, that Evagrius left behind. The first part called the Practicos is 100 chapters and these 100 chapters are arranged in blocks dealing with different aspects of temptation and demons. Evagoras is totally into demons and, and has spent a lot of time with his fellow monks studying how they affect the human body. And he's really interested particularly in what he calls the logismi, the, the rationals, or the, this is what we normally think of as the temptations. The practicos identifies eight different types of logismoi, and they are the origin of the seven sins tradition that 
become quite famous in the West. But Evagrius has eight of them, and he's classified them, and he presents in the Practicus specific ways to deal with each of these temptations and how to recognize them when they appear. He was interested in the psychosomatic effect of these things. So not so much in the Practicus, but in some of his other writings, he will comment on what the body does in response to some of of these attacks. So this is um, straightforward uh, ascetic theory, and it became a cornerstone of of asceticism in in the Byzantine tradition and and in the Western tradition through through Cassian, who is a, a disciple of Evagrius and wrote a number of Evagrius's ideas through his his conferences. Now you say it's a, a, a cornerstone of theory, but it's practice. No, isn't this kind of a practical manual? Like if you're if the demon of lust is assailing you, we all know what the uh, the physical manifestations of that are. We don't even have to get into it. Yeah, this is what you do. Exactly. Yeah, and maybe theory was not the right word. Uh, maybe more principles. The principles upon which one needs to actually act. Um, and yeah, Evagoras has a two tiered system of spiritual development. One is the practical, where you are trying to rid yourself of the temptations. And then as you're doing that, and as you master that, you then start working on the theoretical or the theological, which is the higher form. And that is how he presents the other two works in in the trilogy. The Gnosticos is um, 50 chapters and it deals largely with, with um, interestingly enough, pedagogy and how a monk teaches those under him, uh, especially distinguishing between those who are less prepared for advanced studies from those who are, are better prepared. The Gnosticos survives about half-ish in, in Greek. It was largely lost thanks to the heroic editing of the Guillemonts and then by their disciple Paul Jeanne, the Gnosticos is in a very nice critical edition and, and much of the Greek that survives is, is available to us. The Kephalea Gnostica is a different story. This is considered the capstone, whereas the Practicos has 100 and the Gnosticos 50, the Kephalea Gnostica has ostensibly six chapters of, of, of um, Kephalea, and I'm kind of reverting now to the word kephali instead of chapter because, um, well, it, it's worth including in your vocabulary because they don't quite mean what we mean when we say chapter. Yeah, when we think of chapter, we think of something relatively long, but these are the opposite of that, right? These are little... These are very short, yeah. yeah. And to give you a taste of what you might find in the kephali and Ostica, here's one. This is from uh, Century 1, number 50. Everything that has come to be has come to be because of the knowledge of God. But among beings, some are first and some are second. But knowledge is older than those beings who are first, and movement is older than those beings who are second. Boom. That's a relatively long kephalion in, in the KG. It's highly compressed language. And in these chapters, Kephalia, uh, Evagrius is trying to bring together, I would say, at least three different worlds. One is philosophy and metaphysics. The other is scripture. And the third would be 
praxis or, or application. He moves easily between these worlds and combines them. The KG actually begins, the very first two kephalia are paraphrases of Aristotle's categories, which is a signal, you know, he, he doesn't say, I am about to quote Aristotle. He, he expects you, the reader, to pick up on this and understand what kind of mode he's working in and, and what kind of project he, he has in mind. These six centuries, however, are a bit puzzling because um, each one consists not of 100 kephalia, as you might expect, but only 90. In Syriac, there are some so-called supplements of 60 or more kephalia that are added to the end and are sometimes treated by medieval scribes or commentators as, as being the supplements or the, the, the fillings in, if you like. But there's no reason why we should actually believe that that's the case. These are situations where the scribes have pulled together other smaller collections into roughly a count of 60 to, <laughs> to add them on. But speaking of the Syriac tradition, the KG also has another difficult aspect to it in that it does not survive much in Greek. And that's because it was at the center of the controversy in the 6th century that, that led to the condemnation of Origen, Didymus, and Evagoras. So it was taken out of circulation, although there is evidence that it was read and known at least into the 6th century. And we have some collections, even up to the 16th century, that suggest that maybe somebody had access to to the Greek, because 25% of the text actually does survive in Greek, either through anthologies or through quotations, or um, because Evagrius happened to reuse a lot of his scolia, or actually, as uh, Jean puts it, he, he actually thinks that the, the scolia reused the Cephalaeonostica, but right. regardless of your position, there's a lot of verbatim overlap between the mm. two texts. So we can piece together a large body of, of these writings. But in Syriac, there were two translations, the most popular of which was a boulderized version, where there were a lot of the more metaphysical, advanced, speculative aspects were removed or toned down, made more practical, more, more pastoral. Um, but we do have a second translation which has been labeled S2, the previous one being called S1. And S2, in virtually every case where the, where we have Greek fragments, it comports with the Greek against S1. And so there, there's good philological reasons for us to believe that S2 is actually much, much closer to the Greek that was left behind. And S2 and, is also where the action is, right? In terms And of S2 is where the action is. It's... It survives in only one manuscript, and yeah, it, it's it's amazing that we actually have it because we we would we wouldn't know anything about <laughs> what this was about if if we didn't have it. Right, we just have the maybe the the proceedings of the council that condemned yeah. him and said he's bad for this and this and this and this is all heretical. Done, and then you have to always ask yourself, well, what did he actually say? First of all. And in what context, and and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. What does he say? So obviously, this isn't a systematic theological tr treatise. This isn't even Origen's Periarchon on first principles, which, while 
presenting itself as a kind of slightly speculative, not dogmatic exactly, but kind of exploratory work is nevertheless a, something like a systematic metaphysical treatise, right? That, that's not what we have here. But it seems to me people have still said, okay, you can, you can get a teaching out of this, the Kefalaya Gnostica. Yeah, it was actively read and used in, in the 6th century. Um, we know that because of, of the controversy that erupted at, at the time. So, and it's worth discussing that a little bit before I say a whole lot more about, about the KG. Uh, much of my views on what happened in this period is informed by um, a wonderful monograph by Daniel Holmbergen called The Second Origins Controversy. And he deals with essentially the Fifth Ecumenical Council and what happened there. A series of anti-originist anathemas were drawn up by Justinian in 543. These are your expected anti-originist anathemas. They they, they basically just uh, deal with with things like the apocatastasis, the the nature of the soul, whether demons can be saved, whether the devil will be saved, things like that. Things you might expect because you've read all sorts. Of, uh, you've read this material in Epiphanius and and Jerome and other polemicists again against origin the there can are I a just, number of can i just back up though because yeah one sure. might expect it but but a non-specialist might not know what any of this is about so and we have to cast our mind back in the podcast terms to origin whom we covered in the third century right souls pre-exist for origin right they're not the but the what comes to be the orthodox doctrine is that God creates a soul every time sort of a woman gets impregnated, basically. So souls are just popping into existence. And so That's the right. pre-existing souls becomes heretical. Um, apocatastasis is something which is canonical. This is like what happens at the end times when God remakes the world. But Origen has a very universalist take on this. And the idea seems to have been that all of the universe is going to be redeemed and brought into some kind of divine state, including Satan and his devils, right? Even they will be saved because God's mercy and goodness is infinite. This is also heretical. No, we have to have eternal punishment. And what else? Well, there's the spherical uh, resurrection body. Apparently that was condemned as well. <laughs> yeah, the spherical body. Yeah, pre-existence of the souls, the story of the origin of creation, that, that it, it began with only intelligences without bodies and right. they basically uh, they got bored of God and they through the cooling uh, they became suke play on words in Greek there mm. um, yeah the, you have the descent the, the grand descent from from these no ways um, the intelligibleness of the sun the moon and the stars that's another thing that gets that gets condemned. Um, what meaning that and, they yeah. are that they are thinking beings? Yeah, yeah. This is a <laughs> uh, the, the, these are the sorts of things that Origin was castigated for and and known for. And there are things that uh, Evagoras seems to have held to one form or another. Now uh, there is another set of anathemas that were passed in 553, and these are really different. It's it's it. it you could be fooled, though, because when you start reading them, you go, oh, this is just or anti-originism. But halfway into the list, it starts getting weird and dealing with things that um, we have no record for, having to deal with things like um, 
esochrists, people claiming to be equal to Christ, and a lot of other rather unusual things. And this is the document that preserves four of the Kephalae Gnostica in their Greek. And we have independent confirmation that these are actually accurate. So, so we have explicit quotations of, of the KG within these anathemas. But some of the, these anathemas seem to have absolutely nothing to do with Evagoras' theology either. So now, I've read that there's this that there was just some contemporary flourishing movements within Christianity. Some were the Esochrists. Yeah, right. right. That, that, this, this is the uh, hypothesis Hombergen has put together that, that within Jerusalem or, or around that, the areas of Jerusalem, there were a number of Originist monasteries that were reading Evagrius and Origen and building upon that system, this idea of Esochrists, and this movement is reflected then in these anathemas, which were passed not during, but on the uh, just before the convocation of what became the Fifth Ecumenical Council. And the Fifth Ecumenical Council is famed for condemning what are called the three chapters, not origins, uh, originists, the three chapters being Theodore of Ib. Uh, Ibas, uh, Theodore of Mopsuesti, and Theodoret. So Hombergen's hypothesis is that there were two warring groups within Jerusalem, so originists and anti-originists, and they each decided to get each other by taking their gripe to Constantinople and attempting to condemn what they regarded as the other party's heroes. So in the, it was a war of attrition. They each, in a sense, won in that the anti-originists got Origen condemned uh, and his ilk condemned, but the originists also won in that they got the three chapters condemned. But what, what's actually recorded in the Fifth Ecumenical Council are, are actually the chapters because apparently the Bishop of Rome was not present for the condemnation of or the originists. And did uh, he which, abstain from uh, political reasons or what? I, I won't say more about this because I'm not a special specialist in it, but I, I will refer uh, refer you to uh, to Holmberg's uh, account and and the sources of the time are are rather muddled and confused. There's very little um, clarity in the primary sources as to what actually happened in the fifth fifth ecumenical council. Uh, right. Cyril Scythopoulos presents it as a, a major victory over, over the originists. And he says nothing about the three chapters, but he had, had uh, theological um, reasons to paint that particular picture, which becomes clear when you snoop around into some of the other sources from the period. So let me see if I can sum up the scene that we've fast forwarded now to the, the sixth century a time when, well, the, the reign of Justinian, a time when Christian orthodoxy is going to become, let's say, the most totalizing force, intellect, ideological force that the, this part of the world has ever seen. Like one religion, one interpretation, one emperor, one empire, one god, and there is no room for disagreements on, on some things. And Origen, 
So this incredibly popular, fertile Christian thinker of the third century, and some of his followers who are also not just followers of origin in the kind of intellectual realm of higher metaphysics, but also following this kind of um, committed ascetic um, lifestyle and uh, combining that with real uh, intellectual expertise and uh, even kind of Hellenic education. A whole swathe of these guys is going to be basically declared personae non gratae by orthodoxy. Now, this is interesting for a number of reasons, because on the one hand, these guys are an incredibly important force for what you might call an esoteric strain running through Eastern Christianity. And despite the attempts to stamp it out, you can't stamp it out because it's already, a lot of these ideas are already in Basil and the Gregories. And so they've become, they're in the DNA of Eastern Christianity, unless you want to condemn those guys as well, which you can't really do. But also in terms of what will come to be known as Christian mysticism, Evagrius, well, origin is essential in some ways, but Evagrius is really essential, right? He's going to influence probably Pseudo-Dionysius, whom we'll get to in due time, but also he's being read by this whole, um, and not just read by, but practiced by, in some cases, um, the really hardcore Christian intellectuals of the Eastern realm who are having visions and bathing in divine darkness and doing all this kind of stuff. So he's a, he's an essential writer for the mystic tradition going forward. Absolutely. But he gets condemned. So in a way, he's like this sort of um, deeply liminal figure for Christianity, it seems to me. You can't quite really condemn him, really. But on the other hand, you can. He's officially That's he's true. out. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, that's true. Um, I, I would qualify it in that the condemnation of Evagrius was not enforced because he was being esoteric. Because oftentimes it were esoteric writers who were condemning him. For example, John of Scythopolis, who was one of the great commentators on Dionysius, has some very harsh things to say about Origen and Evagrius. It's because of specific doctrines and specific positions taken by Evagrius on the origins of the world and their destiny. And it's, it's those specific positions that, that are, are castigated and not the process and not the method. So, for example, Maximus Confessor, who is one of the great um, esoteric writers of the Christian tradition, very orthodox and he quotes heavily from Evagrius, relies heavily on Evagrius, but uh, he will alter Evagrius's view to make him to conform to the orthodoxy of, of his day. So that's just one sign of how important Evagrius was and how he was read and received. I, I would say the same same thing in, for everyone else who who worked with and, and used um, used him. I, Isaac the Syrian, for example, yep. uh, makes significant use of, of Evagrius. So Evagrius is going back, for those who listened to our episode with Paul Paschese on Syriac uh, asceticism, the texts that the, those guys were writing and reading, Evagrius goes into that tradition very early, and he's one of the main guys. We didn't talk about him much because he's sort of Greek, but uh, he's, he belongs to that story very much. He's, 
hugely influential, not just for the ascetic practical stuff, but also for theoretical ideas, which might be considered mystical ideas, depending on what you mean by mysticism. Can we talk about the mysticism? Can we talk about the ideas? 